So I drive a 2005 Toyota Camry, which means it's actually 14 years old now. It's got a dent under the passenger side headlamp. It's got another dent on the driver's side door on the top. That one's even starting to rust a little bit. Uh, I put a fresh scratch on the passenger side uh, rear door. You know, in Philly, they have these sidewalks closed all over the place because of construction. And so there's always these fences that are taking up parking spots. And I'm like, I can, I can take that parking spot. Scratched right up against the fence on the side of the car, so there's that. My rear bumper looks like somebody took a machine gun to it. Like it's, the whole thing is just, it's a mess. Now, I don't invest any money in repairing those things. And the reason is because I figure the car is going to die soon anyway. And even if I repair it, I'm going to bump the guy behind me parallel parking soon. He's going to bump me. I'm going to hit a telephone pole backing into a spot. It's going to happen again, right? So no matter what I do, no matter what I invest in it, I'm going to get the same outcome. And we tend to not invest ourselves much in things like that, right? Things that it feels like if I put a lot of effort into this, the same thing's going to happen in the end anyway. That's true of cars. But if you zoom out, have you ever asked the scary question of what difference will your life make in the long run? What are you going to invest yourself in that ultimately will make a difference? Is there anything like that? Do our lives have a purpose such that the way you live or don't live will actually matter ultimately? The Bible's answer to that question is yes, but it's easy to lose sight of. Easy to lose sight of this purpose for which we're created. We can get kind of fired up and get a vision for something that God wants us to do. We can get excited about making a positive impact on our world. But then when you go to do it, you find all the obstacles and all the challenges, or you don't see the big changes happening, the fruit that you may be expected to see. And it's easy in those times to kind of scale back, to withdraw, to give up entirely on it. So what can give a purpose to your life that can propel you even through the hardship, even through the suffering, even through the lack of fruit. Well, that's what this passage that we're looking at today is going to answer. In 2019, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through a series on the Apostles' Creed, which is an ancient summary of Christian doctrine. And we're coming towards the end, actually. We just have this week and next. And today we come to the part of the Creed that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the body. Which means, you will be fit for the kingdom, you will be victorious, and your labor will not be in vain. If you believe in the resurrection of the body, if your body is risen, that's what will happen. So first, you'll be fit for the kingdom. Anytime we talk about bodies rising from the dead, one of the first probably obvious questions we have to deal with is, uh, how can that happen? And thankfully, the passage that we're looking at today begins with that very question, right? Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Good question, right? Now, the reason that Paul's audience, the guy who wrote this letter, would have asked that question is very different than the reason we would ask that question. So this letter is written about 2,000 years ago to people who lived in the ancient city of Corinth. And in the ancient city of Corinth, they were steeped in the philosophy of the Greco-Roman world. And in Greco-Roman philosophy, they, they believed in the gods, they believed in a heaven, but they believed that humans could not enjoy communion with these gods as long as we were in our material bodies. The gods are immaterial, we're material. The heavens are for immaterial beings, we're material beings. And so how could a material being have communion with an immaterial God? And then along comes Paul and the other Christians, and they're saying that our bodies will actually be risen from the dead to have communion with God forever. So to a Greco-Roman person, that's ridiculous. The body is not something that you want to keep. For them, they called the body the prison of the soul. And you want to get rid of the body so that your soul can have communion with this immaterial God. 
Paul comes along and says, no, the body itself will be risen. So they wonder, how could that be? How could the body be risen and enjoy communion with God? Now, we ask the question for different reasons, right? Today, we have a more scientific worldview, and so we're going to wonder more, uh, hey, if I've never seen a dead person come back from the dead, why should I believe that this is true? Or furthermore, how could it even be true? What's the scientific mechanism through which a genuinely dead person could actually come back to life? We don't know of one. So why on earth would we believe it? Still others today are of a more spiritual persuasion and are more like the Greco-Romans, where the body isn't actually a good thing. And so the goal is to transcend our bodies. This is more common in kind of Eastern spirituality, modern New Age spirituality. We want to transcend our bodies to become a part of the spiritual one that is our universe, like a, a drop of rain going into the ocean, losing its individuality and becoming one with the universe. So... They have their reasons for being skeptical. We have our reasons for being skeptical. But they actually did come to believe it. This is in our creed, right? They came to believe in the resurrection of the body. How did it happen? Let's look at Paul's answer to their question. He compares it to a seed. And he says, when someone plants a seed, they put something into the ground, out of which something radically different comes. That if you had never seen it before, you never could guess such a thing would happen. And when a farmer, or think of an apple tree, right? When, when a farmer or gardener takes that little seed and they put it into the ground, they don't then manufacture an apple tree out of it. They don't go in there and slice it open and pull the tree out. They stick it in the ground and forces outside of them bring from that seed a fully developed tree with a different kind of body, to use the language of this passage, with a glory and a productivity and a fruitfulness that far exceeds the glory, the productivity, the fruitfulness of that seed that was put into the ground. Now, if God can do that, if he can bring a tree out of that seed, Paul's saying, why couldn't God do that with a body that is put into the ground and that is dead? That you, you can't envision it, okay, but how could you think that with a seed either? If God can do that, how couldn't he do this? Now, if you don't believe in God at all and he's totally involved in that process, okay, fine, like you're not going to believe in resurrections, but that's a bigger issue, right? We're not going to get into that today. But if, if there is a God, right, it, think of it this way. If our universe has a beginning, and we know now that it does, whatever caused that beginning, isn't it possible that that being would have the power to also cause dead bodies to rise from the dead, to rearrange and redo molecules in such a way that they could have life again? Paul's saying it's possible. It's why, actually, you notice his answer to the question at first is he calls the person foolish. It's not meant to be like a diss. It's more like a disbelief. Really? You don't believe God could do that? Look at what he does with seeds that get put in the ground. You don't believe he could raise a body from the dead? You say, well, again, we don't, we don't have a mechanism for how bodies come back from the dead. Well, they didn't know a mechanism for how seeds became trees either, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. So it's possible, right, if there is this all-powerful God. But not only is it possible, there are things in creation that would lead us, that give us clues that we should expect resurrection. He says in verse 44, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. He's saying, if there's an apple seed, it's reasonable to expect an apple tree. If there's a caterpillar, it's reasonable to expect a butterfly. If we have these imperfect bodies and we seem to cry out for some greater form of existence, it's reasonable to think that that greater form of existence may be there. In fact, he says it is. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So he thinks back in verse 45 to the creation of the first human, Adam. He says, the first man became a living being, but the last Adam 
became a life-giving spirit. He's saying the natural body was there. The first human had it. But there's a second Adam, a second man, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, who now enjoys this glorified body, who is the tree as compared to the seed. And if we have borne his image, he says in verse 49, if we have borne the image of the man of dust and we are in Christ, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. So that if you have one of these natural perishable bodies that this passage talks about, it is reasonable to think that you will be risen from the dead in this glorified body. In fact, it's promised to all those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means our resurrection of the body will be after the manner of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was still his body. The tomb was empty. You could go to him and put your hands in the, in the holes from the nails with which he was nailed to the cross. It's his body. And yet, it was a glorified body. His disciples didn't recognize him at first, even though they lived with him for years. He rose and ascended into heaven. He was fit for the kingdom. So when you rise from the dead, when your body is resurrected, it will still be you. It will be your body, but it will be a glorified, transformed version of it, as different as the apple tree is from the seed. And yet, orange trees don't come from apple seeds. It will be your body. The passage tells us that the body in which we currently live is perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural. It's a perishable body. You you can die, right? You can die at any moment. Uh, Heidegger called us uh, beings toward death. Every human's existence is you are a being headed inescapably for death. It's a perishable body. It's a dishonorable body. All of us are born with the sense that there's something wrong with us. And that's confirmed over and over again in our lives. It's often the wrong things that people are telling us are wrong with us, but we can't get around the fact that there is something wrong with us. Our bodies are used in our lives to do awful things, to carry out the selfish desires of our hearts, to be instruments of unrighteousness. And not only have we sinned in our bodies, our bodies have been sinned against. We've been dishonored. We've been abused, violated, oppressed. The current body we live in is perishable, dishonorable. It's weak. It gets sick. We break bones. We incubate disease. We lose function. We're even sometimes born with these things. And finally, our bodies are natural, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. Adam was good before he, he, he sinned, but... It's a condition that can be reversed. A natural body has the capacity to die. And therefore, verse 50 says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So the Greco-Romans were right, kind of. That current natural, perishable, dishonorable body cannot be risen from the dead. It's going to die. The skeptic today is right, kind of. That current perishable, weak, dishonorable body will not be risen from the dead. It can't. There's no mechanism for it. But God is able to bring from that dead body a glorified, honorable, imperishable body that will never die, that is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Instead of a being towards death, when your body is resurrected, you will be a being enjoying life. You will be raised in honor, Your new body will be an instrument for service to God exclusively. Nobody will be able to abuse, violate, or oppress that body. And in that body, even the pain that you experienced in this body, it's hard to believe, it will seem like a small thing in comparison to the glory 
of a body that you will have when you are resurrected. There will be no weakness. You will be raised in power, we read here. Every sickness will be healed. Every bone will be put back into place. You will run and not faint. You will walk and not grow weary. And it will no longer be a natural body, but a spiritual body. Not an immaterial body, made up of matter still, but spiritual in that it is enlivened by the Holy Spirit himself, which is why it's in this part of the creed after the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that Jesus received when he rose from the dead will come and give life to your dead body. That's a body that's fit for the kingdom. That's a body to answer the Greco-Romans that can have communion with God forever. It's the body in which Jesus lives now and you will bear his image if you are in him. You'll be fit for the kingdom and you will be victorious. So just after Paul summarizes his point in verse 50 that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, he goes on to say that Christians will in fact inherit the kingdom. Now how will that happen? He says it will be in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. These are all kind of Bible terms for when Jesus returns, the end of history. When Jesus comes back, there will be some who are alive in that day, and they will be transformed right away into this imperishable body. There will be some who are dead in that day. Many of us will possibly be dead in that time if Jesus doesn't come soon. And our bodies will be risen from the dead and transformed into this imperishable life. And at that time, we will sing this victory song over death that verse 54 and 55 relate to us. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's a, it's a taunt, really, right? It's a touchdown dance. I mean, whatever your favorite preferred sport is. It's, death is the one enemy in the Bible that you don't have to love. It's all bad. You can hate it. It's terrible. If you ever watch someone die, you know it's terrible. If it's affected somebody close to you, you know it's terrible. And in the day when we defeat it, we're not going to have to be gracious towards it. It's going to be, where is your sting? Where is your victory? You're gone, over, done with. It's a terrible enemy, but it's a beatable enemy. It's a beatable enemy. Do you believe that? Do you believe death can actually be beaten? Most people today don't actually believe that. What are the two certainties in life, people say? Death and taxes, right? So April 15th coming up, so here's your friendly reminder, but... Death and taxes, right? We think that, so, so we think it's a being towards death, right? That's what Heidegger was saying. You can't avoid it. And yet, we rage against it like crazy. We put all this money into the medical system and resources to prolong life. Elon Musk, he, he wants to like colonize Mars, right? To, to preserve human life, to try to fight. And, and that impulse is right, right? It, it realizes death isn't just, you know, the circle of life and return to the dust and all that kind of glamorizing of it. It's an enemy, but it's a beatable enemy, not by colonizing Mars and not ultimately, ultimately, through even curing disease. It's beatable because death is not the way things are supposed to be. Death is the penalty for sin, any failure to be or do what God requires. So verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Our sins mean that we deserve death. The law prescribes that any failure to be or do what God requires deserves death. That's why death is in our world. That's why it has power over all of us. And it's also why it can be beaten. It doesn't have to be that way. So how can it be beaten? Don't sin. Do more good stuff than bad stuff. Give alms, pray, meditate, and the law will find you righteous and reward you. Right? Wrong. That's the religious answer. It's a common answer that most religions will give you. Here's your way out. You can do it. Is that what our passage says? 
Look at verse 56 with me. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Therefore, obey the law, and you won't, get the, you won't die. Not what it says, right? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who what? Gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This victory is a gift that is given to you, not a wage that you earn. God gives it. It's his victory. You will be victorious, but it won't be your victory. It'll be his, given to you, gifted to you. And that's the day when you will ultimately have victory over death. We pray for healing of disease. We pray for healing of pain. And we put resources towards it because the body matters. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. And God is gracious and kind, so he often does that. But when we heal a disease here on earth, we heal a body that is still a being towards death. We delay that, we alleviate some of the pain of it, which is all good, but it doesn't, the ultimate victory will only come at the last trumpet in the twinkling of an eye when the one who has conquered death returns and breathes that new life into you and raises your body from the dead and gives you the victory that he won on your behalf. Because Jesus is the only one who has satisfied the demands of the law. He actually did not fail to be or do what God required in his law. He fulfilled it to perfection, and death had no rightful claim over him. But on the cross, what's he doing? The sting of death is sinking into him. He's not even dying in peace in his bed. He's nailed to a cross, branded a criminal, to bear the condemnation that we deserve, to bear the sting that we deserve. Think of it like a a poison, the sting of a scorpion. Jesus dies in such a way that all the poison is drained out, So that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that though you die still, the sting of death is removed. It no longer condemns you. It becomes what it is for an apple seed. It becomes the path towards this glorified and resurrected life that is yours because Jesus overcame the grave. We don't just believe in the resurrection of the body because it's theoretically possible for an omnipotent God to raise the dead. We believe in the resurrection of the body because he actually has because Jesus Christ has been risen and all who are in him will bear his image because of the victory that he gives you. In the 2015-2016 uh, NBA basketball season, the Golden State Warriors were the defending NBA champions. And that year in the regular season, they broke the record for wins in the regular season. They went 73-9, and nine, so 73 wins, 9 losses, crazy. They had the best player in the NBA at that time, kind of. And they went to the finals. Yeah, I'll get to that. Okay, so they went to the finals and they looked like an unbeatable enemy, right? They, they, they had already won the championship last year. They broke an NBA record for wins. And in the NBA Finals, Sasha Khan defeated them and became the first Russian-born player to win an NBA championship. Have you ever heard of Sasha Khan? I'm guessing not, right? I hadn't either before this week. That's because he didn't play a single minute in the whole postseason. But today, he has an NBA ring, NBA Final Championship. He has the victory. First Russian-born player to win an NBA championship. How did he get it? Because he played with LeBron. And LeBron beat the Warriors. And LeBron gave the victory to this guy. That's a dim picture of how you will overcome death. Don't look at yourself and at our bodies and say, I can't see how that would ever happen. Well, it couldn't ever happen if that's all that was going on. But from an infinitely greater enemy than a basketball team, 
you have an infinitely greater Savior. One who has gone into death, taken the sting, and overcome it, and drained it of its power, so that you will be victorious. And finally, that means your labor will not be in vain. So our passage ends in verse 58, kind of like, why is he talking about all this resurrection of the body, all that Greco-Roman stuff, whatever? What what does it have to do with anything? Here's Here's where it all is going. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The Lord, in verse 57, has been identified as Jesus Christ. And we saw there that the victory is his, that he then gifts to us. And we see that in response to that now, there is work that we do for him, unto him, ways that we serve him, that the Bible tells us what to do. God God gives us his word to tell us, here's how you serve me now, that I have won the victory for you and will give it to you in the end. And what we learn about it here is that any labor that is done unto Christ, anything we do in his name in obedience to what he has said in scripture, will not be in vain. And there are kind of two reasons for that, two, two aspects of that. First sense in which your labor will not be in vain is that since you will be resurrected from the dead, you will exist in a body to receive the reward for your labors. The, getting the body itself, receiving the gift of eternal life, that's got nothing to do with your labors. That's Jesus' labors that have been gifted to you through faith. And the Bible is also clear that as you live forever in communion with God, that there will be rewards according to the way you served Christ on earth. It's not that we can't go further than the Bible in this. So in, in terms of vivid picture of what that looks like, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details, but it's something like this. Everyone who trusts Jesus, who just believes and does nothing, receives the gift of eternal life, and will be with God forever. Every, every Christian, no matter what, how, much work, how many works they've done relative to another Christian. But those who have sacrificed more and given themselves over to service for Christ will enjoy that communion in a fuller and more profound way than others who have given less. It's like everyone's balloon will be full, but some will have a capacity to expand further, to enjoy more of the glory of God. But the point is, every work that you do in service to Christ will be rewarded because you will actually exist after death to receive the reward. There will not be a single thing that you do unto Christ that in the end you will look back on and say, man, I shouldn't have done that. None of your labor will be in vain. That's one sense in which your labor will not be in vain. It will all be rewarded. The second way is that the people you serve in the Lord's name will also be resurrected. They will live forever. The context of this passage, actually, the reason Paul's writing a lot of this, aside from just building them up, is because in chapter 16, just after this, he's going to encourage them to give to the poor. Now you've got to wonder, why give our material wealth to the materially poor? And Paul's answer is, because you will be raised materially to a material reward. And they, too, will be raised materially. So why care about the needs of the body? Because we believe in the resurrection of the body. And that means the body matters. Now, if you're not a Christian, and you believe in the secular story of the universe, that we die, and at death there's a total cessation of existence, that all of our bodies, regardless of what we did in this life, simply return to the dust and become a part of kind of the cosmic stardust, If you believe that, then you have to deal with the fact, 
what compels you then to do good to the body? If everybody shares the ultimate fate, same ultimate fate, you have to face this harsh reality at some point, if that's your belief system, that no matter what you do in this life, your fate will ultimately be the same, and so will be the fate of everybody you help. Even if you say, I'll make the earth my goal, you know, the environment, the secular story is that that gets burned up too eventually. Even if you make your kids or the next generation the goal, they'll outlive you. They're going to die someday too, and they will cease to exist, according to your beliefs. So Thomas Nagel, a professor of philosophy at NYU, says, even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool, or the universe will wind down and collapse, and all trace of your effort will vanish. The problem is that although there are justifications for most things big and small that we do within life, none of these explanations explain the point of your life as a whole. It wouldn't matter if you had never existed. And after you have gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. That's harsh in some ways, depressing in some ways. But you've got to deal with that if that's your belief system. In the end, if there's no resurrection of the body, then it will not ultimately matter if you were a fascist dictator or an altruist. Your fate will be exactly the same, and the fate of everybody you helped or hurt will be exactly the same. Stardust and a total lack of consciousness or existence. Even if you take the more spiritual view, that in some way your spirit lives on, it won't actually be you anymore. Remember, it's the drop that gets diffused into the ocean, and they're just a drop that gets diffused into the ocean too. Your ultimate fate ends up the same. Your car ends up in the same position, whether you invest yourself in it or not. So why invest yourself in it? Now, I'm glad that many secular and non-Christian people do choose to live generous lives, sometimes more generous than Christians, frankly. I'm just pointing out that in order to do that, they have to think less about their ultimate beliefs about the universe and about where all this is going, and more about just the here and now. There's nothing in the belief system that compels you to love your neighbor in that way. There's nothing that you can say you want to do it. There's nothing that tells you why you ought to do it. And there's nothing that can tell someone else why they ought to do it. You can say, well, I do it because it makes me feel better. Ultimately, though, it won't make you feel better because ultimately there won't be a you. And you'll be the same whether you do it or not. Without the resurrection of the body, your labor is always in vain, ultimately. Unfortunately, Christians can fall prey to the same kind of thinking. So I've heard Christians say before, there's only two things that are eternal, the word of God and people's souls. So those are the things we should invest ourselves in. Now, of course, we should invest ourselves in those things. But do you see now that matter is also going to be eternal? That there will be a material body that is continuous with your current body as the tree is continuous from the seed that will actually live forever. If the soul lived on alone, we could content ourselves with just preaching the gospel and getting souls saved. But if we believe in the resurrection of the body, we have to care about the body. The body matters. The body lasts as well. It has a dignity to it that doesn't get thrown away. So a secular person who's struggling to care for others has to think less about their ultimate beliefs. Don't think about how none of this ultimately matters. Think of just the here and now. A Christian who's struggling to care for others, though, has to think more about their ultimate beliefs. Think more about how significant this person's body is. Think more about how all of your labor will not be in vain no matter what you give up, no matter what it costs. That's why we do things in this church like the Easter outreach. 
it matters that we have literal neighbors around where we're meeting today who are hungry because their bodies matter. It matters that there are people in the South Sudan without access to clean drinking water because their bodies matter. That's Easter outreach. The money that beyond what we raise for the meals here goes towards developing clean water in South Sudan through Water is Basic. So it matters what you do with your material wealth because the material matters, the body matters. This is kind of providential. We didn't plan it this way, but it, it so happens that today is one of these matching Sundays for Easter outreach to give towards the delivery of the meals, to give towards the clean water in South Sudan. And any donation you give today will be matched up to $20,000. So what this is saying is, if you choose to take your material wealth and give it towards that, rather than buy the pleasures that it could have bought you, if you spend it on yourself, that will not be in vain. There will be a reward for that. And the people you give it to have bodies that will be resurrected. The bodies that you help will be resurrected from death. If you choose to spend your time on Saturday, April 20th, delivering these meals, rather than the other things that I'm sure would bring you joy to use that time on, good things even, that will not be in vain. The bodies that you serve will be resurrected. You will be rewarded if you do that unto Christ as service unto him. It's why, as Christians, we should care about things like material poverty, police brutality, divorce, literacy, foster care and adoption, criminal justice reform, abortion, education. These things affect people's bodies, and people's bodies matter. And if you believe in the resurrection of the body, you have to also have a concern that people hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Because here's the deal. If bodies are going to be risen, and this resurrection unto imperishable honorable, strong, spiritual life happens through Christ, then the eternal fate of somebody's body depends on them hearing and believing this message. Jesus tells us that every body, every human being, will be risen from the dead, but that some will be resurrected to life and others to everlasting judgment. And the difference is where they stood in relation to him, whether they had trusted in him. Because here's the reality. Only one person has fulfilled the law. Only one person has borne the sting of death and drained it of all of its power. Only one person has overcome the grave, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Which means if we have concern for the bodies of our neighbors even, not just for their souls, then we must be concerned that they hear the gospel, that, the God, that this message get to the parts of the world that don't even have access to it right now. That this message get into the life of your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, who either doesn't understand it or doesn't believe it. Because the eternal fate of their body rests on hearing and believing this message. Christians have a tendency to isolate some aspect of the work of the Lord, usually the part that we're most kind of naturally drawn to, and then to kind of denigrate or even eliminate other aspects of the work of the Lord. So, I mean, whole churches and movements form around this stuff. So you have some churches and Christians who are very concerned with social issues and very engaged in the political process, but not that involved actually in the lives of materially poor people. You have some churches that are very connected to the material needs of their community, but you would never hear the gospel proclaimed there. You would never see people sent out to proclaim the gospel in other parts of the world that don't have access to it. You have other churches and Christians that are very concerned with evangelism and discipleship, but who are totally disconnected from the material needs of their community. 
Evangelism, discipleship, the ministry of the word is an essential work of the Lord. It's just not the only work of the Lord. There's more that God gives us because the body matters. Both the preaching of the word and the care for the body matters. There's Christians who are um, doing great in their jobs, working as unto the Lord, but are not concerned for the eternal destiny of their coworkers. And there are Christians who are sharing the gospel and slacking off in the job that God's actually given them to do. The mentality that happens among us, and I'm including myself, is, hey, I'm doing the work of the Lord. Why should I have to do other stuff? I, I, I got my thing, right? Like, I, I, well, What more do I need to do? But if your labor in the Lord is never in vain, none of it, then we shouldn't be looking for ways to limit and diminish the amount of work we do unto the Lord. We should be looking for opportunities to do more of it. There's never going to be a work that you do for him that you'll ultimately regret. It will never be in vain. So we should always be looking for more. It's always a sign of spiritual unhealth. If you find yourself asking the, what do I have to do question? Okay, fine. How much money do I have to give? Just tell me what the Bible says. Okay, how often do I have to come to church? Okay, like what do I have to do to care for the poor? Um, That mentality is cancerous. That'll, that'll kill your soul. Because you know what it'll do in you? I know what it'll do in you because I think that way a lot of times, so I've got experience. It'll, it'll, it'll make you want to ignore the needs and the problems around you because those problems put on you new work from the Lord that you don't want to do. So the other night, I was walking home from my gym. It's just north of here, like a 1500 block of Parish Street, like Broad and Fairmountish. And uh, there was a guy who blew a flat tire. And his car had actually fallen on the jack that was holding the car up. So his car is like on the ground, the front tire is removed, and the jack's underneath, and the guy's just sitting there. It's like Friday night, like 8.30. You can tell his girlfriend is like not happy about the whole situation. And so I walked past him, and I really didn't want to stop, you know? But the Holy Spirit kind of like forced me, (laughs) and hey man, everything okay, you know? Um, But what am I thinking in that time? I think, I hope I don't have to help this guy. I'd have to go back to my house and get my car. I'd have to lose my parking spot. And giving up a parking spot in Fairmount on a Friday night is like death, you know? Like, so I don't want to do that. I could get my... So thankfully, the guy had called a friend, and he had a friend who he told me was on the way. But my attitude towards the whole thing is like, whew, good. I don't have to help this guy. See that mentality? It's, it's, um, it's a, it's, it views the work of the Lord as a burden, so how can I do as little of it as possible to get the Lord off my back? But look, if you're a Christian, the Lord's not on your back. The law's been fulfilled. Jesus accomplished it in your place. The sting of death has been removed from you. You will never experience it. He's going to give you the victory through Jesus Christ your Lord. Now the work you do unto the Lord is not this burden that you have to shoulder. It's, it's the freedom, actually, to live the way you were created to live. You were, I was created to help guys like that. And my selfishness stops me from doing it. But what is offered to me in Christ is the ability to get free from that and to live for something bigger than my parking spot on a Friday night. So if, Because that will never be in vain. I will never look back on that eternally and say, I wish I hadn't have done it. I will be rewarded. That guy has a body that matters that will be resurrected in the last day. Even if you screw up the work you do unto the Lord, 
He rewards it because it's offered in Jesus Christ. Our labor in the Lord is never in vain. Even the crappy stuff you do for him, and all, of our, all, of our, all the work we do for the Lord is a mixed bag, you know, mixed motives. We never quite get it right. But if it's unto him, he is pleased to reward it, to accept it in behalf of Christ. Because again, the law has been fulfilled for you. Don't view the work of the Lord as a burden. It's what you were created for. And God's not judging you based on how well you pull it off. Jesus pulled it off in your place. And victory will be given to you as a gift on his behalf. So if you really believe in the resurrection of the body, if God will give you the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, you should go from asking, what do I have to do, to how can I do more? Evangelism? Oh, cool. Like I can tell someone else about this? Yeah, give, give me more of that. Uh, serving in the church? That sounds awesome. Yeah, cool. Like, what do you need? How can I help? Um, caring for, for the poor? Wow, that's an awesome opportunity. Their bodies matter. My body? Okay, yeah, let's, let, let's go for it. Uh, foster care adoption? That sounds like an awesome opportunity. Can, can I hear more about that? Like, let, let's get book fair, you know, meal delivery. These things are all, wow. Politics? Like, there's a way that I could actually serve the Lord through the way I vote? Like, yeah, I, I want to learn about that. I want to hear about that. Uh, international missions? Uh, wow, there, there's places that don't even have this good news? Yeah, I'd love to know more of that. The, the word in this passage, it says, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's abound in it. It's actually excessive. It's not always do the work of the Lord, always abound in it. It's actually translated greed in other passages in the Bible. So you could read this, always be greedy for the work of the Lord. You're never going to be able to do all of it, okay? And if, you can't, if that means you can't sleep at night, that's a problem too. You have to be able to rest. But we should be greedy for it. She's saying, look at what he's done for me. Look at the reward I have in heaven. Like, give me more, <laughs> you know? It's not a burden. You know, people who hate their jobs, they're the ones who want less work, right? I don't want to do this work. People who love their jobs, though, you've got to pull them out of the office, right? They want to do more because they're not under a harsh taskmaster. Well, if you're a Christian, you're not under a harsh taskmaster. You're under a loving Father who gives you the victory through Jesus Christ your Lord. So be steadfast. Be immovable. You can't do it all. You're going to meet hardships along the way. You're not going to see the fruit right away of the work that you do unto the Lord. It's going to sound like a neat vision, and then three days in, it'll get hard. And you can quit. You can just scale back on it. But if you don't, your labor in the Lord will never be in vain. You will not get to heaven, resurrected body, communion with Christ, and say, you know, I wish I'd done a little less for him. I should have gotten a bigger house. I knew that, you know. Why did I give my money away? Why did I spend that time helping that other person? I could have, I could have watched another movie, you know? You're never going to feel that way. So don't live that way. Always abound in the work of the Lord. He'll give you the victory. You'll be fit for heaven, and your labor will never be in vain. Let's pray. Father, we were created to live for you and for your glory. I confess um, that my selfishness is the biggest enemy of that. This smallness that I have that just is thinking about my parking spot and my happiness. Forgive me, Father. Forgive us, Lord. But we thank you that there is a victory for us that has been won on our behalf, Lord. When we had no hope, you have removed the sting of death from us. The law can no longer condemn us. We receive the victory of Jesus Christ this morning. We rejoice in it. We praise him. And we pray that you would develop in us steadfastness immovability. Give us a hunger, Lord, a greed even, if we can use that word, for the work of the Lord. Give us more opportunities 
to live the way we were created to live, to please you, to live for a purpose bigger than ourselves. For we know, Lord, that none of it will ever be in vain. There is nothing that we will give up in service to you that we'll wish we could get back later. We will be with you forever. We will be victorious in you. Make us steadfast and movable. Make us abounding in your work. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.